From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. This morning, we're going to be talking about how ecosystems adapt to urban settings and why rivers in Alaska are literally turning orange. That's right. Our first guest this morning will be Dr. Peter Alagona. He is an environmental history professor at UC Santa Barbara and the author of the new book, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. The book tells the stories of how cities across the United States went from having little wildlife to filling dramatically and unexpectedly with wild creatures. And then in the second part of the show, we're going to turn your attention to the north the rivers of Alaska. Dr. Patty Sullivan, director of the Environmental and Natural Resource Institute, joins us to talk about why some of Alaska's rivers are quite literally rusting and turning orange. It's an environmental mystery that has its roots in climate change and a warming world. That's right. All that and some news about how the top 10 warmest years on record are now the last 10 years. That's scary. That is unbelievable. It's never happened before uh, in recorded history. We'll give you the details on that. Environmental awareness and education, that's what This Green Earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And joining us for the first part of the show is Dr. Peter Alagona. He is an environmental history professor at UC Santa Barbara, and he's the author of the new book, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. Dr. Alagona, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Hi, Chris and Claire. It's a pleasure to be with you. Hey, um, first, before we, before we get in, you're in Santa Barbara. You guys just got walloped. Mm by some storms. Maybe we have a few minutes to talk about that because there's environmental impacts going on right now in South Santa Barbara and South Is everything okay at UC Santa Barbara? Well, I have to say I made the kind of foolish mistake of driving home from a trip in Death Valley uh, <laughs> on Sunday afternoon. And so I went right into the brunt of it. Uh, fortunately, we're all uh, okay here. But one interesting thing that happened is uh, during storms like this, my street tends to turn into something like a creek. Mm. And the reason for that is that there used to be a creek here. And that history of transformation of urban environments like the one I live in, and like the one many of once many of your listeners live in, is a big part of the story of this book. Ah, that's a wonderful segue. Unfortunate as it is in that sense, uh, atmospheric rivers uh, provide a segue to our to our uh, interview with you about your, your new book, The Accidental Ecosystem. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in the environmental field and how did you become an environmental history professor? Oh boy, well, I've always had a real uh, interest in, in nature. Uh, and although many folks who study wildlife begin from a biological background, uh, it occurred to me sort of early on becoming a, a lover of reading and, and writing and studying history that there was something really important to be understood about how contemporary ecosystems not just function, but also uh, came to be the way they are. Hmm. And so I joined this field of environmental history about 20 uh, years ago. And since then, I've been incredibly fortunate to be able to study a huge range of 
uh, species from a historical perspective, from desert tortoises and kit foxes and condors, uh, to a current obsession of mine, uh, which is the California grizzly bear, which has been considered extinct in, in the state where I live here uh, for about 100 years, but some folks are now uh, looking at the possibility of bringing it back. Hmm. And so you have written two books previous to this, um, maybe a little bit about how they fed into your latest read and what that speaks to about maybe predictability or patterns in wildlife that we are now seeing them, you know, once we envision wildlife, mostly we think of national parks and these wild areas, but now we're thinking more in terms of urban areas. So can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, Claire, I mean, in a way, you're sort of describing uh, my own personal journey as well as the journey of a field and many other folks out there. Um, you know, I spent the first uh, decade or so of my career studying um, issues having to do with endangered species conservation. And in many cases, endangered species are almost by definition uh, species that most people don't get to see because they're, they're often very rare. There are some exceptions to that. You can go to the South Rim of the Grand Canyon, for example, and see California condors. Mm. Uh, but, but in many cases, uh, we don't get to see them. And so after about a decade or so of, of studying these issues, uh, I was finishing up a bunch of projects. I was finishing up a first book. I tell this story in the preface of, of the book that we're talking about today. And I kind of was at the end of a very long work week and I, I hopped on my, my bike to go home and I had a little wildlife encounter on the way home. I, I uh, was riding on the on the bike path and I saw a bobcat. And we had a moment where we both sort of stopped and stared at each other from about 10 feet away. And you know, I knew bobcats were, were around, but this was one of those moments where it was just like a forehead slapping kind of dumb moment where I realized that I'd been studying creatures that almost nobody ever sees, but I was interested in the relationship between people and wildlife and all around me, there were all these amazing wild creatures. And so that got me really into thinking more about the relations between people and wild animals in cities. So let's now talk about cities in general and, and how wildlife kind of, um, I guess, over time have, have adapted to city life, let's say semi-urban <laughs> life. Um, you say that, that yeah, initially cities were developed without necessarily wildlife in mind? Well, you know, this, this book is called The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities for, for a reason. And uh, a big part of the, the, the argument, the thesis here, is that wildlife has sort of returned mm. uh, to many cities uh, in numbers that were kind of unexpected even mm. a few decades ago in the US, but also in some other parts of the world, in, in Europe and parts of East Asia, uh, Latin America, elsewhere, uh, in part due to decisions that were made by people decades ago, often for other reasons, not having to do with wildlife at all. And so this was a very unexpected uh, set of developments and people are still kind of wrapping their mind around what it means that areas that were long presumed to be uh, kind of sacrifice zones in a way for ecological health and for wildlife have now become these weird enriched urban uh, urban habitats. And so just, you know, for an example, you know, in before the, the middle of the 19th century in the United States, 
Uh, most cities had very few trees. And as a matter of fact, there were actually laws in some uh, uh, some municipalities prohibiting tree planting. Hmm. Uh, trees were considered fire hazards during hmm. a time in American history when most structures were, were built of wood and when uh, fire codes were not nearly as effective as they are now. Uh, and in many cases, insurance companies wouldn't even uh, insure structures that were next to trees. And so this was a major uh, disincentive. This changed in the 19th century, largely because uh, folks, including physicians uh, and civic leaders and others, realized that planting trees in cities had a range of benefits for people. Mm -hmm. uh, but over time, as trees became, or as cities became uh, more treed, greener and leafier, uh, they also started to provide new kinds of habitat for creatures that couldn't survive there uh, even just a few decades earlier. So this is an example of this kind of ac accidental ecosystem idea. So now when I imagine this, it, it seems, you know, when we talk about the predictability of wildlife, we first went in there and pushed them all out and now it seems like they're finding their way back because like you said people are putting in parks and trees and this Backyards, more resembles yeah their natural habitat so now they're filling in these spaces that you know i guess if you're talking about how they work and their patterns that would make sense right hmm. well you know there's a term in in the the scientific literature uh novel ecosystem and a novel ecosystem really refers to uh, a kind of ecological arrangement, an assemblage of, of species uh, and habitat attributes that's really new in evolutionary and ecological history. And so, uh, you know, areas of intensive agriculture, I think, are like that. Uh, certainly cities uh, are like that. There are very few, if any, species uh, that have uh, adapted in an evolutionary sense uh, quickly enough that we can call them native, truly native to urban areas. And so these are kind of weird new uh, ecosystems. On the other hand, there are aspects of cities that in some ways mimic, uh, you know, often by accident, uh, features of natural environments. And in North America in particular, this is kind of a fascinating thing, it was one of the first big aha moments that I had while working on this book. Uh, in part because of uh, political and economic history uh, of the United States, uh, we tended to build uh, our, our cities that became our biggest, most prosperous cities in places that were unusually biologically diverse and productive prior to the city forming. In some cases, this was because this was where some of the most prosperous and wealthy indigenous communities were located in areas with a lot of natural resources year round. Mm -hmm. Uh, but they also became places of trade and commerce. Uh, and so it turns out that many of our cities are actually located in areas that have been biologically rich for a very long time. And when we're speaking ecosystem species, we're not just talking about uh, animals, you know, four-legged animals per se, but, but all uh, species, whether it's pl animal or, or plant or, or insect, I mean... Um, it, it covers a, quite an array of environmental systems that can adapt and evolve to adapt to uh, urban or semi-urban settings, right? Well, you know, Chris, when people think about wildlife in, in cities, and they, when we see, you know, if you see like a coyote, for example, right. you think, oh, that's kind of out of place, you know. 
uh, that animal really belongs, you know, quote unquote, belongs uh, in a natural um, uh, area. But you know, what these animals are responding to, and I think you're kind of pointing to this, is not some, you know, aesthetic sense of what uh, many of us would define as natural or wild or, or even wilderness, you know, or even the, the lines we draw on a map around national parks. What, what they're responding to is habitat. Mm -hmm. If you see an animal in an urban area, it is there because it is somehow either just trying to pass through, uh, perhaps, or because it's able in some way to take advantage uh, of the features that we have in part created uh, in those areas that add up to, to habitat. And so thinking about cities as habitats, uh, multi-species habitats is really different for a lot of folks who are not used to thinking about them that way. But that is the way that all of these other creatures, plants, uh, animals of all kinds, uh, are seeing the landscape and responding to it. When So when you identify these wildlife that are finding habitats in urban areas, do you see common traits among them? Hmm. Oh, that's a great question. I love it. So going back about uh, maybe 20 years to really the, uh, the origins in the United States of, of uh, urban ecology as a field that's really grown a lot over the last generation, um, there were a couple of landmark papers that looked at this. And, and one, this is a little bit um, oversimplified, so keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. but, but one of those landmark papers defined three kinds of animals uh, relative to urban environments. Urban exploiters, urban adapters, and urban avoiders. The exploiters are animals that tend to do well in urban environments around the world. You see them wherever you go, you know, the crows and pigeons and certain kinds of rodents that are really able to take advantage of, uh, uh, of urban environments. We can talk about why that is in a second. I think we should come back to that. Right. Uh, the urban adapters, creatures that can do well around urban environments, but often require some refuge. Uh, and so these might be like the coyotes or the, the deer, or the raccoons uh, that kind of forage uh, in cities in the, at, by night and then retreat into green spaces during the day. Oftentimes they commute like many of us. Uh, and then the urban avoiders, these are animals that don't do well in urban environments that tend to avoid them. And when you see them there, it's often because they're just trying to pass through and get from one place to another. Mm -hmm. And so in Southern California, where I live, one of the best examples of this is mountain lions, right? Uh, and so so uh, why, why are some species able to be urban exploiters? Well, there's a cluster of traits that many of them have in common as different as they may seem. So what are these traits? Well, they tend to, uh, be relatively uh, intelligent, at least as we would define it, compared to other animals in their kind of taxonomic group. They tend to be omnivorous. They tend to be cultural in the sense that they learn lessons and pass them on to their young. Uh, and they tend to be habitat generalists, meaning that they can live in a wide variety of areas. Now, Chris and Claire, <laughs> what does that remind you of? Hmm. Give me a hint. Uh, it reminds, <laughs> it reminds of, you. It, of, it should remind you. It could remind you of people. Yeah, humans was, have all those qualities. How we don't so not, fall far. I'm not from on your program to tell your to tell your uh, listeners that you know they have something in common with rats and pigeons, but right. biologically, ecologically, we're doing some of the same things that allow us to exploit these kinds of spaces. Like people that identify with pizza rat. <laughs> 
right. That's right. That's exactly right. You nailed it. Let me let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Peter Alagona. He is an environmental historian, conservation scientist, and nature culture geographer. He's also the professor of environmental studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the author of the new book, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. So, Peter, we talked about exploiters of urban settings. How about some examples of adapters? Yeah, adapters. So these are the creatures that uh, can, can benefit from exploiting the uh, resources in urban environments, but they're not totally comfortable there. Hmm. They often live along the edges, along the urban wildland interface, or sometimes, um, like I said a minute ago, they commute, right? So they, they may forage, for example, by night when the dangers, the hazards that urban environments present may be a little bit less acute, but they can still um, access the resources that these enriched habitats provide. And so uh, I think among the most famous of these are what are called the, the meso uh, predators or meso carnivores, medium sized uh, animals that are either carnivorous or omnivorous. And so we can all name those, right? So um, coyotes, mm -hmm. skunks, foxes, possums, you know, that, that group of animals are have traits that enable them to do this kind of urban adapting uh, in a way to take advantage while also um, avoiding some of those hazards. And there are others too, uh, but these are some of the strategies that they use. Might that also include bobcats or do bobcats fall under kind of the rubric they, of they avoiders? Do. You know, an interesting thing about bobcats, I, I love bobcats. Yeah. Amazing, beautiful species. You know, they are, uh, so they're not omnivorous. They, they're really obligate carnivores um they're hunters they they tend to eat rodents and rabbits um, which we have a lot of around where i live uh, a lot of western cottontails uh they they tend to really try to avoid people mm -hmm. um as many wild uh, feline species do but the thing about bobcats is their prey doesn't right so those western cottontails don't really avoid people and so the fact that they are uh, so reliant on these this, these prey species really often draws them into uh, suburban environments where they can hopefully, uh, like I said, take advantage of those resources while avoiding some of those hazards. You know, some of the biggest hazards that are presented, I think, in urban environments are very obvious. Uh, for birds, they're often collisions with buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, for terrestrial uh, animals that are locked to the ground, that don't have wings, they're, they're often automobiles. I, I mentioned bobcats because here in Park City, whether it's because of social media or, you know, uh, um, ring cameras or door, door cameras or so, there's more sightings of bobcats as they become comfortable. As you say, they're becoming more comfortable with the, the human nature interface, but also sources of food, including, unfortunately, pets. And so, um, so there's more opportunities for them, and they seem to be getting... I, not bolder, but they don't have any problem coming up to patio doors and hanging out on back decks on a sunny afternoon and such. So they're they're getting again their their numbers seem to be increasing here. Can avoiders turn into adapters? I yeah, guess. Okay, yeah. Well, that, that's a that's a really great question. You know, I was in Death Death Valley. I mentioned this weekend, um, and I was in that, I did it for a moment. I was in the parking lot at the old refurbished, beautiful in there. 
um, at the park and there was a coyote standing right in the parking lot staring at us, you know, and it was clear um, that uh, he had plenty of natural habitat around there. This wasn't an incursion into his habitat. It was clear that he was coming there for a reason and had probably been doing it. Um, and so something very similar can happen with bobcats. These are intelligent animals that learn lessons. That's one of the reasons that they can survive in these environments. Um, I, I think that there's just a couple things to note about what you said. One is that um, the advent of, of technologies like um, you know, remote cameras, camera traps, mm -hmm. um, this has made people aware of trends that were actually have been going on for many decades, mm. right? And so we're now more aware of it than we used to, but but the processes that led to these animals being more around us um, have been going on in many cases since the 1970s or, or 1980s, or in some cases even longer. Another thing that's really important uh, to recognize is that although <laughs> some of these meso-level, medium-sized uh, carnivores and omnivores have very bad reputations for uh, hunting pets, and in some cases they do, um, this is often overblown, and we know this from studies of their gut contents. And so bobcats, um, you know, most bobcats are under 20 pounds. Um, they're, they're unlikely to take uh, larger animals. It does happen occasionally, but, but it's, it's quite rare. And so um, isolated incidents uh, on social media become uh, conventional wisdom, even though oftentimes scientific uh, studies, systematic studies, uh, provide a much different kind of picture. And let's also just remember that with animals like bobcats, um, you know, they're actually out there hunting uh, a lot of animals that we would rather have few of around, mm -hmm. fewer of around. And so bobcats are taking rats and other rodents that uh, are often garden pests, for example, uh, pests around our homes. And so they're providing a really important ecological service. And we should, I, I think we should really value that and actually try to figure out ways to to coexist with and even accentuate those, those but, things. Yeah, but, but but as you alluded to, too, they can have a bad public image sometimes because when people post photos of, of bobcats and coyotes in particular, um, they sometimes the, the captions will include, like, bring your pets and your small children inside, you yeah. know, because yeah. because not only will they, they take your children, but they will do a better job at raising them. And I think that's one of the greatest fears. Um, but <laughs> um, you know, with coyotes and bobcats, I, I think part of the psychology here, um, in addition to the things we've talked about, is that one is very, very close to a dog, and one is very close to a cat. Right. And so we're kind of like, on the one hand, seeing them through the lens of of the animals with which many of us are most familiar, which is pets. On the other hand. I think a lot of people view a coyote as kind of like a bad dog, you yeah. know, bad dog. And so I, I think that, you know, thinking about how they use habitat, about what they're actually doing, about what they're actually out there eating um, uh, and how they're living, I, I think for me has generated a tremendous amount of, uh, of respect and value for these creatures. And I would encourage others to, to kind of look further, further into that and, and to really try to better understand the ecologies of the creatures that we live with. I, I do wish they'd work on their, their cries at night. That's, <laughs> that could help their public image a lot if it wasn't so hair raising. But let's, <laughs> let's turn to avoiders now. Which, which ones are, are that fall into that classification of avoiders? Um, I'm going to take a wild guess. Grizzly bears? <laughs> uh, now you're talking about one of my favorite yes, species. So, okay. so avoiders, I think you can think of as falling into a couple main categories. Uh, one kind of avoider 
is an animal that requires a lot of space, mm. uh, that travels over large uh, distances, and that when it comes into contact with people, sometimes there can be issues, right? Mm. And so, you know, bear, some bears are, grizzly bears certainly are uh, in that category, mountain lions are in that category, wolves are in that category. They'd rather have nothing to do with us at all. They really try to avoid us. Uh, and when we when we come together, um, it's, you know, um, uh, you know, it can, it can occasionally um, cause problems, although oftentimes it's just an amazing uh, wildlife sighting. Mm -hmm. um, so those are avoiders, but then there's another group of avoiders too. And these are the animals that are unlike the generalists we've been talking about, that can live in a wide variety of different kinds of habitats. These are specialists. And what they really require, based on their evolutionary histories and their ecologies, are natural habitats the habitats within which they and their ancestors have evolved. And so when urban areas sprawl out into the countryside and gobble up uh, natural habitats, these are often the animals that are the losers in that equation when some others become, become the winners. And so it's both animals that range over large areas and require lots of resources on the one hand, and then on the other hand, those ones that really are restricted to very specific kinds of habitats. So here, again, in Park City, I'm thinking possibly moose, but more notably elk mm. as examples of avoiders generally. I think that that's probably right. And I think that in cases where, for example, moose or elk become something less like avoiders, yeah. um, that, that's, a, that's a potential issue, you know. Um, and I think that the biggest issue here uh, often is associated with automobile accidents, right? Yeah. And, you know, this is, if I could just kind of connect two dots here, uh, because we're having such a, a, a fun conversation. <laughs> um, there have been some studies that have come out recently that have shown, one in particular that looked at New England, um, that showed that based on almost any kind of mathematical set of assumptions um, that you could come up with, having pumas, mountain lions, return to New England would make people safer. Why is that? Right. Well, the reason is because uh, in most parts of North America, uh, pumas, most pumas, not all, are uh, specialists on hunting deer. And in many parts of New England, uh, there are very large populations of white-tailed deer that have rebounded from something close to zero over 100 years ago mm. uh, and are extremely abundant now. And the main source of uh, wildlife conflicts, property damage, and, and injuries as well uh, in those areas um, has to do with car collisions. And so if you think about the relationship between mountain lions and deer, not just preying on them, but also changing the way they move through the landscape, then returning mountain lions to New England, even if you assume that occasionally uh, there's going to be a mountain lion that takes somebody's pet, that mm -hmm. sort of thing, um, or even that gets hit by a car too, uh, having those animals back on the landscape actually makes people uh, much safer over time. And so that's a counterintuitive thing for a lot of people to wrap their mind around. Right. Uh, but the, the math is pretty compelling. Yeah, we're, we're building these pathways. We have a um, uh, corridor for wildlife on uh, one of our highways. Yeah, overpasses, underpasses. It's been a problem here, and, and the elk do move, and, we, and I think a lot of people that do live in this area have adapted 
like you said, humans aren't far off from right. <laughs> these exploiters. <laughs> um, we've adapted to them coming through the neighborhoods because they will come through our golf course. And I think that people are aware of that. So there's this adaptation of when we kind of know their patterns of moving through. And, and recognizing the value and the benefits of animals like that in our, in our backyard, mm-hmm. so to speak. Well, they're certainly being drawn in, um, in some cases, to resources right. like uh, lush grasses, you know, during the summertime or, you know, available uh, water at certain times, that kind of thing. But I think that the, the best thing that we can uh, do for some of those large, wide-ranging animals is to provide them opportunities just to pass through and do what they do. And that is why, as you say, there's so much effort right now where you live and where I live. Uh, to create more pathways that uh, increase connectivity among natural habitats so that these animals can really move through without having to stop, to linger, to get too accustomed to living in urban areas, uh, and then to create problems for people and also for themselves. We only have a a minute or so uh, left, and so this is the part where I ask you a question that will take five minutes to answer, but... Too bad. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the possibility of reintroducing puma uh, back east, or otherwise, you know, cougar, mountain lion, that that type of cat, and the and the environmental and uh, benefits that it could provide uh, as as part of a natural ecosystem. I'll ask the big one here out west: wolves. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're definitely probably fall under the avoider category, but you know, the introduction of wolves, even into rural uh, settings, is fraught with, um, you know, uh, controversy. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Oh, my gosh, Chris, that is a big question. (laughs) I know, sorry. Um, You you know, let me me offer this. Um, Wolves can potentially um, cause cause property damage to livestock. They also provide a huge range of ecological services. They're amazing animals. And they're also very important um, for many uh, indigenous uh, groups throughout the West, as are, as are many other species. And so we need to think about this in a, in a, a holistic way. Um, we have, over the last 20 years, um, we've developed a tremendous amount of, to- of tools uh, that we know can work to reduce uh, risk to people while increasing benefits and providing opportunities for coexistence. Now what we need to do is we need to reform our institutions, uh, we need to update our laws, and we need to put our money where our mouth is a little bit and invest in these things so that people who who live in rural communities, uh, who work the land, who produce off of it, can continue to, to live those uh, lifestyles and be engaged in that kind of really important activity. Uh, well, at the same time, providing uh, space for the kind of ecological recovery that will really benefit society as a whole, and wolves are a poster child for that. All right. Dr. Peter Alagona, environmental history professor at UC Santa Barbara and the author of the new book, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. Real quick, website that people can go to to learn more, say, about the book or, more importantly, about your work. Yeah, um, you can check out some of my work at uh, peteralagona.com. Uh, you can go to the Environmental Studies website at UC Santa Barbara. And if you're interested in grizzly bears in California, uh, calgrizzly.com, and there's going to be a lot more going on about that over this uh, year with the 100th anniversary uh, of the last credible sighting of a grizzly bear in California and a new conversation 
about what it might take to bring them back here. And we'll have you back on yes. the show for that. Yes, we will. <laughs> Definitely. Thank Fantastic. you so much. Thank you very much, Peter. Let's take a break for some, an underwriter or two. And when we come back, we'll turn our attention to the north, specifically uh, the rivers of Alaska and why they are literally rusting away. It's this green earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. Joining us in the second part of the show is Dr. Patty Sullivan. He is the director of the Environment and Natural Resource Institute um, up in Alaska. And he's here to talk about what is happening, what's being observed with some, I'll, I'll, I'll take a guess and say some of the rivers in Alaska with respect to their, I don't know, chemical, mineral, uh, and bio ultimately biological makeup. Dr. Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, well, let's, th there's a, just a lot of general background of, uh, with respect to this story and the research you're doing. I guess we'll start here. What is happening to these rivers? And where is this uh, occurring? What part of Alaska is it occurring in? Um, it's primarily occurring in the, in the Brooks Range, um, which is in far northern Alaska. Um, we've seen some um, indications of similar processes in the Alaska Range as well, but it's, it's far more widespread in the Brooks Range, and it's most concentrated in the, in the western half of the Brooks Range. The, the Brooks Range is it's an Arctic mountain range that spans the entire west to east um, longitude of, of Alaska um, in the north. Okay, so this is uh, rivers then at our, I'm going to guess, haven't been to the Brooks Range, in, but it's up, up in the Arctic. They're frozen most of the year, right? So this is a phenomenon that's occurring during how many months of the year? Um, yeah, the rivers tend to be flowing from you know, late April, early May until October when they typically start to freeze up. Um, so, yeah, it's a phenomenon that's occurring throughout that time period, but we're also seeing indications that um, the processes are still active in, even in the winter hmm. um, when, the, when the, you know, the streams are surficially frozen, but there's still some liquid water that's, that's moving around in there. Okay, so when you say processes, what is going on? What, what do you suspect is going on? Yeah, so our hypothesis is that um, as the climate has gotten warmer in this in this region of the Brooks Range, and the snowpack has gotten deeper, um, that the permafrost is is thawing and um, minerals that were previously not exposed to oxygen are now interacting with liquid water. And um, these sulfide minerals, um, when they um, when they interact with water, they produce sulfuric acid, which um, has the potential to leach out um, a wide range of metals from the uh, uh, from the parent material from the rocks beneath the tundra. And these these metals we think are flowing into the streams and um, and giving them this um, fairly hideous um, orange um, and turbid um, character. When did you first notice this occurring? 
Yeah, it's a pretty recent phenomenon. Um, we really first started noticing it in 2019, mm -hmm. uh, right before the um, the COVID pandemic. Um, and that that came right after uh, a couple of winters with unusually deep snowpacks. Um, you know, the warming has been kind of going on for, for decades um, in Arctic Alaska, but um, the snowpacks have more recently um, gotten quite a bit deeper. And we, we think that that has to do with retreat of, um, of sea ice from the, the Chukchi and Beaufort Seas um, that, um, that border Northern Alaska. Um, so, so yeah, we weren't able to investigate it too much during during 2020, um, but um, since we've all kind of like returned to the field, we've been, um, yeah, increasingly um, improving our understanding of, of what's going on um, by collecting lots of samples and surveying the landscape for, um, for the sources, uh, essentially, of this. And I should also say that um, there, there are really kind of two processes that are contributing to this. Um, that what I described initially here is what we call acid acid rock drainage, mm -hmm. and it's it's essentially the same thing that you see in in mines. Right. You know where rocks have been broken up, um, and um, you get these really acidic tailings um, that are also like loaded with um, a wide range of metals. And you know one of the concerns after mining is is containing um, those tailings ponds that are um, that are full of um, acidic waters. Right. Um, but a, another um, process that we think is going on um, at um, kind of like lower um, elevations, lower landscape positions in um, wetland ecosystems is that this thawing permafrost is um, is exposing new material to um, waterlogged conditions with very limited oxygen. And um, under those anoxic conditions, you can actually mobilize a fair amount of iron um, that can ultimately then be flushed to the, to the streams as well. Um, this is a little bit less of a concerning um, process because it's primarily iron that's generated through this, this kind of anoxic um, waterlogged wetland scenario, whereas the acid rock drainage, you know, it produces a wide, a wide range of metals, and many of them are are toxic to aquatic life, right. you know, things like aluminum and zinc and cadmium and um, arsenic, like on down the list of pretty much almost every metal you can think of. Right. Um, there, there's a number of potential impacts here. Like you say, there's, first of all, just simply lowering the pH of the water has environmental impacts to to plants and and marine life, um, and then and then the the animals that or so that might feed on that that depend on those fish or so plants, and then you know, like you say the, the lowering the pH has the potential to put heavy other heavy metals that might be in a non-soluble state into a soluble state, which now renders them more toxic environment. So there's there is a <laughs> The environmental impacts, let's just try to under, get our head around the potential environmental impacts. Are these rivers literally void of life at some point? Uh, they, um, well, I, I should say one thing here too. Um, so that, you know, once you once you reach the streams, the pH isn't really very strongly affected. The, hmm. the, uh, the Brooks Range is, um, it's, it's a predominantly limestone mountain range. And hmm. so the, the pH buffering capacity of um, 
of that limestone is really strong. And so, you know, these, when we find these acid seeps in the tundra, the pH can be, you know, like two. Wow. But as soon as, as soon as the water has flowed a little bit um, downhill, um, approaching the, the streams, it, it quickly returns to like circum neutral, you know, we, we see pH of six, seven. And so, okay. so we don't really think that the pH itself is, is having a huge impact on the aquatic ecosystems. Um, but it is kind of a, a useful tracer and indicator of, of what the process that might be driving the high metal concentrations is. Okay. Um, but you asked about like impacts on aquatic life. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So when we um, are out there in the field investigating this, you know, we, um, we do kind of like some quick surveys for, um, you know, aquatic macroinvertebrates, invertebrate, you know, the bugs that basically live in the streams right. that form the base of the aquatic food chain. And yeah, in these more impacted um, tributaries, we we typically see nothing under the rocks, mm. like the, the bugs are gone. Um, and um, our, our colleagues at the um, Park Service and USGS who have also been working on this, um, they've they've done um, more surveys on like juvenile fish, and they similarly find that there's you know in these more impacted tributaries, there's essentially nothing going on. They're pretty close to biologically dead. Um, wow. That, and so again, the, the there's the the knock on effects associated with that, right? If the if the river is effectively dead, then the raptors or uh, so that that depend on the fish that are in the river they're impacted uh it's etc right there's there's a you got to think about the ripple effects associated with these oh yeah phenomena. for sure it affects the whole the, the whole food chain you know yeah. it's a little bit hard to um to really kind of nail down with you know scientific evidence the you know the impacts on some of these higher trophic levels but um we have lots of anecdotal um observations of bears behaving in like very unusual ways oh. um in these systems and um yeah you mentioned that the birds at least you know they're a little bit more able to just kind of like fly off to a less to affected a, yes. watershed but yeah the more um the, the less mobile species are 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 probably going to be most impacted and and many of these rivers support, um, his, at least historically, supported salmon runs. Um, chum salmon is kind of the predominant um, salmon species in that region. And it's really important for um, like rural subsistence harvest. You know, there are all these villages that are um, in the region and the people who live in those villages, you know, they depend really strongly on on both caribou um, and, um, and chum salmon for their their sustenance and so so it's a big deal for them as well yeah that was my question about if um they do feel like it's uh, a farther off place where this is occurring but there are indigenous people that live there that mm -hmm. are relying upon these waters mm -hmm. yeah yeah there there's there are quite a few villages that are kind of downstream of this um on the kobuk and then there's sort of the hub community of kotzebue which is um right there at the mouth of the Kobuk. So this has been centered around, you know, what you're observing in the Brooks Range. 
Uh, and we know, and you, like you alluded to, the Brooks Range may have certain soil types and, and biological setting and, and chemistry associated with that. Maybe this is this phenomena is limited to these rivers in the Brooks Range, but there is there any way to model or predict that it might show up in another range somewhere farther south or west? Yeah, um, yeah. So the um, the acid rock drainage is is dependent upon the the parent material. Right. You really need to have those sulfide minerals in order to generate the acid to then leach out the metals. Um, and so you know, of course, in these remote northern mountain ranges, oftentimes the the geologic maps are really coarse, and um, I would say we don't quite have as good of information as we would like to have in terms of the, you know, the potential spatial extent of, um, of these sulfide minerals. Um, however, our, our impression so far is that, um, that most of the Brooks range is, is potentially susceptible. You know, we've seen streams, you know, in the, in the far Eastern and Northeastern, um, portion of the range, um, where it's still much colder during the winter um being affected and then we've also been receiving lots of reports from northern canada of similar observations Mm. and it's it's a little early to say yet you know whether these are um derived from acid rock drainage or if it's more of the kind of like wetland anoxia um scenario um you really need to kind of like superficially they kind of look the same they produce these orange rivers but you really need to, you know, do the um, the metal analyses on the water in order to be able to um, pinpoint which of the two is 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 um, is ultimately responsible. So in in some manner, um, the the changes are widespread, but we don't quite yet have a really good handle on um, the the full spatial extent of the more nefarious acid rock drainage right. um, scenario. Okay. And now as humans, I know we, we do like to get involved. We tend to intervene and try to look for solutions for this. But how much human involvement is there going to be as opposed to nature cleaning itself mm. up or working this through? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the potential for remediation is really, really low. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, I think it's it's just one of those things that, you know, we've kind of opened up a little bit of a Pandora's box and we'll, we're going to be left with little choice but to just kind of like let it run and see see what happens and see how see how long it lasts for see how how long um it takes to exhaust this supply of um sulfide minerals um i, I think that most of us who are working on it are anticipating that it's a it's essentially a geologic process oh. and so it's going to occur on geologic time scales which is like thousands of years okay oh, wow so there is there yeah. indication that this has happened before and resolved yeah. itself yeah that's a great question we think that it probably has happened before um you know there have been times when um you know the earth has been warmer than it is now um and um and there there are some indications like we've read like these old reports of you know people um, collecting sediment cores um, in the in the Chukchi Sea that have shown like bands of iron in the the sediment cores, which suggests that the rivers may have discharged um, 
fairly large quantities of iron previously. Um, but I think that the, the other thing that we generally think is that, um, you know, the rate of change that we're currently imposing on um, on these systems in terms of the, you know, the rate of warming and the, the changes in snowpack are almost certainly unprecedented. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, historically, it may be that this process occurred, but it occurred, you know, in a, in a much like slower and more kind of like metered fashion, um, as opposed to like, you know, we found this one watershed um, um, on, in a tributary of the Salmon River that had a, a small watershed, had 12 of these, like um, we call them acid burns, um, but these places in the tundra that were basically like producing the acid that was, you know, leaching out the, the metals and, and the, you know, the pH of the little stream that was coming out of this watershed was like, it was like three or four mm. um, when it reached the larger tributary, and it was it was still running clear. Um, so the really the really bad water is clear, and it's not until the pH is buffered that the iron comes out of um, comes out of solution and gives that characteristic orange color. Um, and so it's just like super widespread and super rapid right now. And I think that probably you know in the geologic past when this has happened, it's been like small doses that have kind of like trickled out over long periods of time um that likely had much more modest impacts on on you know the aquatic ecosystems well uh just just another minute um what are your next steps um yeah so we're um we're we're continuing to try and pin down the the, the spatial extent um and get to the point where we can predict places where this hasn't yet occurred, but, um, but it, it may occur in the future. Um, I think that's, that's kind of like the big, the big challenge that lies ahead. Um, and then we're still, you know, working on the, you know, the toxicology side of it and better understanding what the impacts are going to be on, um, on fish populations that, um, that people and wildlife depend on, um, but we're getting pretty close to being pretty confident that we've we've nailed down the, you know, the processes that are contributing to it. We're still mm -hmm. trying to figure out, you know, we're using this Salmon River, which is a wild and scenic river in Kobuk, um, Kobuk Valley National Park. We're using that as kind of like a case study to, to try and um, quantify what proportion of the, the iron that we see in the river is derived from the acid rock drainage process versus the the um, anoxic wetland process. Um, right. So it's one thing we're actively working on right now. All right, Dr. Patty Sullivan, he's the director of the uh, Environment and Natural Resource Institute. Thank you again so much for joining us, and I think we'll be circling back with you in another six months or so to get an update. Thanks. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for having me. Thank, Thank you, you so much.